Teens are dismissed. Well, good morning, church. Can you guys hear me? I didn't do a sound check this morning. But, um, well, if you guys don't know me, my name is Corey Smith, and I have the privilege of kind of bringing you the sermon today. Um, yeah, I'm super excited about that. I'm like, I'm like pumped. Uh, I've, I've been pumped all week about this, and then they handed me a laser pointer, and then I was, that's all I could think about. So, if y'all got sunglasses, put them on. Um, but no, I, I'm, I'm super pumped about this message, and I'm so confident that God is going to do something in somebody's heart. I wanted to make this, Kent did the announcements, but I just kind of wanted to do this little tidbit that um, I'll be available in the, we've got a welcome center term. Did everybody know that? It's got big signs, it's got letters and everything now. Uh, but I'm going to be back there today. Um, if anybody wants to talk about the message, if anybody is convicted by the Spirit that they should be taking next steps. Uh, I'm going to make myself available back there today. Um, so i got to tell you a funny story. Because i got to break the ice. You know me. Um, last week, I was back in Children's Church, and uh, I was talking to Michelle, and Ryan comes back. And Ryan's like, hey, man, summer prep going good? You ready? And I'm like, yeah, you know, feeling all right. Got one in the chamber, no big deal. And he's like, you got one in the chamber for John 4? Like, were you just writing sermons? And I'm like, no, it's, I said it's John 15. He said, it is. Not John 15. And I said, well, uh, then I do need to write a sermon. And he was so worried about it. He texted me, like, Sunday night. He's like, man, if you can't do it, like, I'll figure it out. And I'm like, nope, I got it. And um, God really came through for me this week in prepping this. And I hope you guys see that uh, today. So if you want to do a little bit of prep work, where are we at? Anybody know what we're, I've confused you guys with the John 15 story. We're in John 4. April read it for me today, um, so I don't need anybody to stand up and read it for us. But did you guys, I have a question for y'all. Did y'all do this growing up um, in Sunday school where you found, like, your teacher gave you a verse? Yeah. What do we call them? Oh, no. You got sword drills. You got the sword That's what, we went down, I went down memory lane with that. But, um, like, it was in Sunday school, and, like, the kid had to stand up. For those of you that didn't grow up in Sunday school, um, the teacher would give a chapter or verse in a certain book of the Bible, and they have to stand up and read it because, let's face it, you can't trust that Sunday school kids actually found the chapter and verse they were looking for. So you had to prove it. Um, but let me give you a little bit of insight. I was thinking about this this morning. A uh, little bit of insight on what sword drills and how you kind of rated your competitors. Um, if you have a hardback Bible, you are going to get destroyed. Okay, because the leathers flip much better. You've got to have just a thick page enough to get through it quick. Um, but I digress. Since everyone's got the Bible app and nobody probably wants to stand up and read today, April already did that for us. I'm going to hit everyone with a pop quiz. 
uh, making sure you guys didn't get Sunday amnesia. You guys know about Sunday amnesia, right? I, I get it. So I know, unless I'm like the oddball here, um, it's where you're really into a series, a sermon, and then boom, you get the car and you're like, I don't know where I just spent the last hour. Um, I don't know what I talked about. I don't know what implications I can have for my life. It's like you wonder if you got like abducted or you got hit with like the little hit stick from Men in Black. Y'all remember that? You guys probably don't because you're all good church people. So you guys are in good shape. Church, can we pray real quick and then I'll get into the message and I'll quit rambling. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you fill the room with your spirit, Lord, that you would use this message, that you would use me as your vessel. A vessel to either transport someone to the starting line of this journey with you, or as sustenance or nutrition for a fellow believer already running the race set before us with our eyes on you. May we be people of faith. May we be people who believe what you say and go and do it. Lord, give us strength. Give us wisdom. But most of all, give us grace. We pray all this for your glory and our neighbor's good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So good, church people. What did we talk about last week? Remember, I got a lazy word. Jesus turned water to wine. Where was that at? Do we remember the town? Well, it's John 2. Jill's next level. What, what town was it in? Or it's in Cana, but of Galilee, right? It's kind of that outskirt, that, that realm of Galilee. Um, Jesus turned the water to wine. Jesus, right, the, the takeaway for that was Jesus bearing our cup of suffering so that we could drink his cup of the celebration, right? That what he accomplished on the cross, he also pulls us into. The whole goal behind this series and this sermon today has been and hopefully will be these two ideas. And I'm going to try. Patesh trusted me with this thing. and Your trust was misplaced. This is the title of our sermon. We'll go to the next one. See, I'm already dropping the ball on it. Okay. What is John wanting us to believe about Jesus in this passage? So for all my note takers out there, I want you to write this down because I'm going to give you my thoughts, but I want you, I want you to think about this question. What does John, the disciple of Jesus, want us to see and realize about our Lord Jesus? Remember, John is writing this well after the events have taken place. So how does this story point us to and what he knows of the risen Savior? What is he trying to get us to understand about this risen Jesus? How our belief, not just our head knowledge, but also heart action lead should lead to a shift in our lives to better represent Jesus. So John is telling us this story for a reason. What is it? If you guys remember in the overview, this is Ryan's illustration of getting on the airplane, that that 50.001% belief. What do we need to know about Jesus to kind of cross that threshold? That's what John's trying to relay to his readers. And once we've leaned into Jesus, leaned into following Jesus, what do we need as believers to continue to learn and build on that belief, right? Not to stay at the 50.001% belief, but how do we mature and grow as Christians and followers of Jesus? Oh, yeah, I'm in now. And question two, how might this believing lead to life? Uh, I'm going to spend some time unpacking some things today. So I hope you guys, like, I don't get up here that often, so I got, like, pent-up frustrations of, like, I, I want to share this. So you're going to hang out. We're going to hang out in my space for a little bit. And I got the mic, so 
Um, so with this, how can we, how, how might this believing lead to life? How can we, through this book and through this passage, find life? And I'm not talking about the meandering kind of life, right? Not, not the ordinary, but this abundant life, the here and now that Jesus talks about. To, point, to this point of finding this abundant life, uh, C.S. Lewis has a famous quote that I experienced in real time this week. Uh, when I was prepping the sermon. Man, Eric's already in. Or so Katie's back there too. So the quote from C.S. Lewis is, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Mm. So I think for the American church population and for the Western church population, and I take on them a lot because I'm part of the American church population, so I can do that, um, that we're far too easily pleased. Or should I say nearsighted? Right? Like we can't fully see fulfillment of promises because we only see the small obstacles that we have in front of us. So we're too terrified, and I'm speaking of me, right? When I say weird, I mean me, but I'm hoping you guys are in the same spot I am. But we're, we're terrified by the concept of jumping too fully into Jesus because we're afraid we're going to miss out on something. See, this is the part that I got to live out this week was with my kids. And I got to experience what God deals with me on like, a daily basis, that we're like children. See, in the Smith household, I don't know if you guys know this, I'm giving you an insight into, not too much, because Samantha doesn't want to give me too much insight, but but in the Smith household, we keep pretty good snacks around. I mean, we keep, like, the good snacks. Amen. <laughs> so, Ryan's like his dad in this. Ryan could attest to this fact as well. And my man beelines for the pantry when he comes over. He's like, he didn't even say hi. He just goes in, goes to the pantry, gets a snack. Um, I get to pick on him because he's not here. But also in the Smith household, we've been practicing a little more self-restraint when it comes to snacks and desserts. Trying to, let's be honest. Let's just say we're a work in progress, okay? It's not like it happens overnight. But Corbin... My oldest son. So if you don't know, Corbin is literally like a chip off the old block. We we go at it. But the other night, Corbin, my oldest, he, he asked me for dessert after dinner. And I'm like, buddy, no. Like, we got this new rule. We're only doing desserts on weekends or like special occasions. Like, we don't need dessert, like on a Monday night when we're not doing anything. Um. And trust me, like, it's not what I want to do, right? I want dessert on a Monday night, too. But I'm trying to teach some delay. I'm trying to teach him and myself some delayed gratification, right? Is we don't need it. We want it, right? That, that distinction. But my man is a negotiator, all right? He's like, now the pudding. No. Have a honey bun? No. About this granola bar I found in the bottom. It's old. I mean, you guys, can I have it? It's even, it's out of date. No. Have you tried an M&M? Just one. And like, it's the opposite of like, eat your food. It's like, 
just let me lick it, just to have some small sense of satisfaction that I got one over on you. And the whole time while we were in this negotiating, I knew that he had soccer practice coming up. And I knew, obviously he didn't, that if he participated well, if he worked hard, if he did what his coach asked him to, I'd probably reward him. And we had some friends going, so I knew there was a dynamic there that he didn't fully understand. We had we were meeting some friends there that we'd probably include them to try to get a get some packed ice cream after soccer. But he didn't know this, right? But I wanted him to see that I wasn't against rewarding him, but that obedience and determination are the deciding factor. That it's supposed to be a celebratory thing, not an ordinary thing. And two, because I don't like having some selfish thing either. Right? He, he could have settled for the honey bun, for the granola bar, for one measly M&M, right? He could have settled for that just to have that taste of satisfaction that he got one over on his old man. Right? He could have settled for the mud pie, not knowing what the father had in store in the master plan. Are we, we feel that? Or he could put in the work, fully trusting that his father would reward him for a job well done. See, I sat with this idea. I, I told Samantha the same thing. I'm so guilty of this daily. Not fully jumping in, not fully abiding in the mass, father's master plan, because I'd rather have some small sense of gratification, something I can hold on to, something, an M&M, a mud pie instead of the Father's intended reward for a fully committed follower. Folks, real quick, and then I'll get off my soapbox and into the message. I'm like sweating. Let's go. I told Samantha I need a hanky. Um, if, I, I want to drop this. If you're, if you're complaining about the state of our society, of our nation, of our world, I would first ask, have we, the church, have you, the believer, fully immersed yourself in the Father's plan for his new creation? Or are we sitting here complaining about our lives, our society, our church, and our community because we'd rather have a mud pie than a holiday at the sea? Should we complain about this life as hard and as terrible as it is, but we're too, if, you, if you drill down, we're too scared, we're too worried that we're missing out on something that we won't fully lean into the Father's plan. And we won't really see that abundant life because we can't imagine the holiday. We can't imagine it because we're, we're, too, we're too appeased as a people by these measly portions that sit in front of us. I'd rather have what I can see, some small sense of gratification, and trust that the Father has a goal and a plan and a reward that would far exceed anything you or I could imagine. All right, I'm going to move my soapbox over here just in case I need it later. But today we're going to be in John 4, starting in verse 43. So, I'd love for you to read along. And that, oh, I'm going Yeah, there it is. And at the end of two days, Jesus went on to Galilee. He himself had said that a prophet is not honored in his hometown. Yet the Galileans welcomed him, for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration. They had seen everything he did there. So, I'm going to stop. Eric, quit. Katie, there we go. I'm a pickle, y'all. We're going to be back and forth battle all day. That's all right. I'm going to stop here real quick. And not that it has anything to do with my intended message, but I want to talk about it. Um, Matt gets on me all the time for this. 
it's funny. He's like, where were you going with that? And I'm like, I have no idea. Like, am I wrong? <laughs> so, <laughs> you stay, you just hang on. So when one becomes a follower of Jesus, especially in adulthood, can we agree that there are probably some obstacles that you need to overcome? Just a few. See, the beauty in that, the beauty in this story about John, that John is telling us about Jesus, is that even the Messiah, the God incarnate who was sinless, had to overcome some of these same obstacles that you or I did. Why would Jesus say that even a prophet is not honored in his own hometown? What do you think? They, they knew him, right? They saw Jesus grow up. James, um, who is the half-brother of Jesus, who writes the book of James and was the principal elder of the church of Jerusalem, was Jesus' half-brother. Imagine being so confident that this person, this, this man is the God incarnate, this Christ Jesus, that your half-brother is convinced and willing to die for that. Imagine that. Now me, on the other hand, and I'm not identifying myself with a prophet, but I've got some baggage that I carry around my hometown, right? I, I lived here, um, I've grown up here, um, but you being a transformed, a new creation in Christ Jesus, being reborn of water and spirit, you've probably got some baggage around your hometown too, especially if your lifestyle has changed to reflect Jesus. See, I've shared some of my past, and I won't drag you back down that road, but I've lived and grown up here my whole life. And I did some dumb stuff, like, let's, this guy up here today is not that guy. And I can't even blame it on being B.C., right? I kind of shared some of that before. That's before Christ for my history nerds. Um, I can only blame it on myself. See, this first section I think could be a sermon unto itself, but I'm going to stay on track. No that even the prophets have baggage in their own hometown. You probably will too if your lifestyle starts reflecting Jesus instead of your flesh. Verse 46. Yeah. And as he traveled through Galilee and he came to Cana where he had turned water into wine. See, Jesus, see, John was even dealing with people with church amnesia. Like, I want to remind you of these things two chapters ago, but I want to remind you of it, um, that there was a government official in nearby Capernaum whose son was very sick. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son, who was about to die. Oh, we're going to stop there. Okay, that was me. Now, we, we just heard the warning that a prophet's not usually welcomed in their own hometown, right? And if we can, I, I think we can all safely assume that if John is mentioning the wedding at Cana, that it probably ties into why the government official is asking for Jesus to, for his help, right? He's heard, this official has heard of this Jesus, this miracle worker from Galilee. Maybe he can heal my son. I don't know if you're familiar, but we use certain types of language around here. And I love to kind of unpack those. Not that I do it perfectly, but you kind of get my idea for it. Um, have, you, have we heard us use the phrase, we want to be a kingdom outpost in our city? Yeah. So hopefully you've heard that. And hopefully I can unpack my thoughts well around it. And it's good that we're all here. And then we're kind of on the same page. At least you're on the same page with me. But kingdom outposting is what Jesus is doing here. He's begun his, he's begun his ministry and conquest at Cana. And he's spreading his message throughout Israel. People are hearing of this rabbi 
changing the power dynamic. So in our overview, we talked about Christ meaning the anointed one, right? Not Jesus' last name. Got some Greek meaning behind it, anointed one. And how Jesus was a better priest than Aaron, a better king than David. And I'm going to unpack a little bit of this. He's also a better conqueror than Joshua. See, the ideology behind kingdom outpost language is that we're not in friendly territory. That we're in outpost behind enemy lines, winning ground for our king with his war plan, right? The gospel, not the world's game plan. See, the, the broken world systems and the governments don't see our king's plan as realistic. But we know him as the greatest conqueror the world has ever seen. They say, how can loving your neighbor be as powerful as the sword? They say, how can loving your enemies and praying for those that persecute you be better than an F-35 fighter jet? See, do we trust in the promises and word of Jesus? You're just kind of picking shoes and, and wander through there. Are we more content with mud pies instead of the holiday of the sea? Are we convinced that the power dynamic of a fallen world outweighs the instructions from our creator and king? I'm going to move on before I get myself in trouble. See, the official has heard of this Jesus and the miracle that he performed at Cana. If this man can change water into wine, if this man can bend nature at his will, surely he can save my son. The official pleaded and begged for Jesus to come to Capernaum. Because if Jesus didn't do what the official thought he had to do, how would Jesus do the miracle? Jesus, I've got an idea in my head that you need to do. Come and do it. Verse 48, and Jesus asked, Will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? The official pleaded, Lord, please come before my little boy dies. And Jesus responds with, Will you ever believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? So the Greek there for you is plural. And I love it because it's y'all. Will you all ever believe unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? So Jesus told him, go back home. Your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. Oh, I'm back. So go back home. Your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said and started home. See, I know we're all good church folks here. But I want to sit with this for a minute. He didn't negotiate. Right? He didn't question. Jesus even hit him with a rhetorical question. Will you ever believe unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? Maybe this man's a lot like us. So Jesus, there's often times I've wanted Jesus. Jesus, just split the heavens open, let the world see you. Wipe away evil, sickness, death with a snap of a finger. Do it. Jesus didn't do that, did he? But Jesus told him, go home, your son will live. No receipt, no rain check, no maybe. All this man had was a declarative statement from Jesus. Jesus said, go. The man believed what Jesus said and started home. 
the man started home. So we have to have faith in Jesus, even when it doesn't look like what we want. See, the official could have pleaded for a honey bun or a single M&M from Jesus. But he didn't negotiate for a mud pie. He trusted Jesus for the holiday. He trusted Jesus provided at the wedding at Cana that he would provide for his son now and that he would continue to provide because he said he would. Church, I'm, I'm convicted in this message, not by the miraculous act of Jesus. That's awesome. I'm convicted because of the faith of this man and how much mine lacks in comparison. So the man believed what Jesus said and started home. No questions, no communication, just solely relying on Jesus and what he said. See, and he didn't have a history with Jesus. This stranger, this miracle worker from Galilee who had turned water into wine told me that my son will live and I'm turning and walking in faith to what he said was true, that your son will live. Verse 51, while the man was on his way, some of the servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. But he asked them when the boy began to get better, they replied, yesterday afternoon, yesterday afternoon at one o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. Then the father realized that this was the time Jesus had told him, your son will live. And he and his entire household believed in Jesus. This was the second miraculous sign Jesus did. This is a lot, man. I'm like back and forth. This is the second miraculous sign that Jesus did after coming from Judea. Now, Ryan shared this in the overview, and it's something that we've talked about and studied. Belief in its most basic form may mean a cognitive understanding of something or an intellectual agreement, but I'm convinced we missed the mark with that definition in the biblical text. But I'll ask you, because I put an emphasis on my community of faith, when John records that he and his entire household believed in Jesus, do we think this father, this presumable husband, that him and his family agreed intellectually with Jesus? That's it. I don't think so. Can we safely assume that he and his family had found a radical new life, a radical regeneration, a radical new allegiance in this God and flesh, this Messiah, this miracle worker, this Jesus. See, this is a beautiful picture I think John is painting for us, and it draws back to the beginning of the sermon. I want to answer these two questions that we started with. And I want you to answer these two questions for yourselves. What is John wanting us to believe about Jesus in this passage? These are some of my thoughts for the note-takers. Um, if you want to like email me problems with my thoughts, you can do that at ryan at canvascommunity.church. That joke never gets old. Um, but I think John wants his readers to understand the power of Jesus. See, last week we talked about Jesus' power over time and creation with the turning of water into wine, even his power at that molecular level to do that. This passage, this week, I believe Jesus... John emphasizes Jesus' power over life and death and how faith and belief are interwoven into God's divine authority and plan. Guardrail caveat. And I think this is important. Jesus, if you've noticed, Jesus doesn't heal every sick person in the nation state of Israel during his ministry. He heals some, but not all. 
I don't think your lack of faith or prayer or fasting didn't heal somebody. That doesn't mean we don't beg to God for it anyway. See, I believe Jesus' healings are part of a bigger picture. I don't think they're part of this remedial temporary healing just for show. And, and I'll unpack that. There's some something that draws, they are something that draws the marginalized to him. But I think there's something even more than that. The, the government official's son probably die anyway, eventually. Yeah, we can probably assume that. See, I believe Jesus' healings during his ministry were more than just this temporary belief. See, Jesus, this Messiah, what does John want us to realize? That he knows about the risen Savior that we don't. That this world, God's initial design was never supposed to be like this. Sickness, death, this was Adam's choice and our consequence. Because we were born into this humanity. But Jesus, this risen Messiah, offers us something else. If you go back a chapter, a rebirth, an opportunity to be born again that he tells Nicodemus in the previous chapter. See, Jesus' healings are a picture of what creation was supposed to be like, perfect in harmony where God dwells with man. See, now God, through this Christ Jesus, has begun a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. But like we talk about all the time, we're in this, this tension. Between Jesus' healings at his first ministry, where sickness and death are spoken away, and his second coming, where he's righted all the wrongs of humanity's first fall in the garden, where his enemies are his footstool, according to Hebrews 10. This place where sickness, death, and the grave have no hold over us. Where Revelation 21, 3-5 says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among His people. He will live with them and they will be His people. God Himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then He said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. See, the tension is this life between gardens, between Eden in Genesis and New Jerusalem in Revelation. The man believed what Jesus had said and started home. Do we have the faith to believe that Jesus will right all the wrongs of this world, even if it's not the way or you or I would do it? This is our story today. That the man says, come, but Jesus says, go. And he walked home. We have to have faith in Jesus, even when it might look different than what we want. Question two. Maybe. Maybe. Question two. How might this believing lead to life? The government official was never the same after encountering Jesus. But his family. Think about them, right? He and his entire household believed. Yes, he talked to Jesus. Yes, he saw this holy man. Yes, his son was healed. But where did the belief of his wife come from? She didn't meet Jesus. Maybe she thought it was a coincidence that their son was healed. 
Maybe she thought her husband was insane for chasing down this holy man, this Jewish rabbi in the desert, wandering the countryside. Authentic, transformative faith is infectious, especially when someone encounters Jesus and their life is radically transformed. See, maybe he had more than one son. The Bible doesn't specify, but John does record that he and his entire household believed in Jesus. Now, in some, now in Jewish context, and I mean, there's a debate among scholars whether this 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 official was Jewish or Roman. Did he work for Herod Antipas? We don't know, but the chances are they weren't living in a suburban metropolis of Galilee with a nice yard and a single-family home. They probably shared their home with more than just what we're used to in the American family unit. It might be grandma, it might be grandpa, aunts, uncles, children, nieces, and nephews. But John does record that he and his entire household believed in Jesus because of one man and his son's healing. See, I don't think these people just intellectually agree with Jesus. But I think what they saw and what they experienced changed their minds. Brothers and sisters, I can attest to miraculous healings that I've been a part, that I've witnessed, that I've been a part of. Um, but people could explain those away as coincidence. I'm not going to argue for them. But you know what they can't explain away as coincidence? An authentic transformation of a person in the name of Jesus. Kind of hard to explain away as coincidence. Matt Kucinich posted this last week, and I had to steal it because I think it fits so well with the sermon. And I love seeing words of wisdom from our brothers and sisters, not just up here. Wisdom exists within the body of Christ. Matt writes, one of the biggest proofs outside the Bible of the reality of Christianity has changed lives. There are so many transformation claims. Transformation claims. Right? Lose 10 pounds in 10 minutes. Sleep better in five days. Make 10 times your portfolio. But rarely do we in this environment see true transformation. Today, which was last week, right? We get to see five people make a public statement that their lives have been changed by the message and teachings of Jesus. So wherever you are, God loves you and wants to be in relationship with you. No judgment, no reservations, no catches. What you decide to do after that is up to you and God. Seriously. Salvation and sanctification are two different things, very connected. But you don't need to clean up to take a shower, and you don't need to clean up the house before you start taking the junk out. It's the same thing with God. Come as you are and see what happens next. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're here today and you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, heck, if you are a follower of Jesus, I'm going to leave you with this. Consider the cost. Following Jesus will probably cost you things, friends, relationships, ego, desires. Even the disciples remembered that a prophet's not usually welcomed in their hometown. But I'll ask you, are you more content with the mud pie because that's what you know than the holiday of the sea that Jesus has promised us? Are you more content living within the old creation that brings sickness, death, tears, and sorrow because somehow it feels recognizable? Comfortable, even. Or will you count the cost and dip your toes into the sea of abundant life now, leaning into the teachings and kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ who promises to make all things new? Do we have that 50.001% faith to believe what Jesus said and who Jesus is and submit our lives to the Lordship, to His Lordship, and start home like the official did from our sermon today? Um. If you didn't grab a communion cup on your way in, 
And real people realize I didn't grab a communion cup. So would somebody grab that for me? Love you guys. Oh, thanks, Eric. If you didn't grab a communion cup on your way in, you can now grab one. For those of you that are unfamiliar with the way we do communion here, we practice an open communion, which means we're not policing. We're not policing communion. But we will say that if you are a practicing follower of Jesus, we encourage you to partake the bread and the juice with us, whether you call this place your community of faith or not. If you would not consider yourself a follower of Jesus, but would like to start on this journey with Christ, I think communion is the perfect time to do that. His body and blood was broken and shed for you just as much as it was for me. I'll make myself available, like I said in the beginning, I'll make myself available in the Welcome Center um, in the front after the service. This communion is your first step in following the Lord Jesus. I'd love to talk to you more about that. So communion is a time of remembrance of what our King, our Messiah, our Lord Jesus did for us on the cross. But... Like Ryan talked about last week, it's also a celebration of things to come. So we talked about Revelation 21 today, the place of no tears. And there's a ton of interpretations around that passage, and I won't muddy the waters with those with you, with you, those today. But what I will celebrate is a unifying aspect to all mainstream interpretations. Jesus is coming back. How? We don't know. When? We don't know. All we're told is to be ready. As we take the bread from the cup, as we remember Christ's body broken for us, may we also remember that Christ is coming back for us. The same with the juice. Wine throughout the New Testament is a picture of Christ's new covenant. A covenant that he invited us into by shedding his blood on the cross. Now, As a follower of Jesus, let us drink of this cup of celebration, knowing that our Lord drank our cup of suffering. And if you would, church, let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message today. I thank you for the people that are here and online that heard your word. Lord, may you grant us the strength and faithfulness to believe you at your word that you mold us into people who don't need miraculous signs or wonders, but are content with you and your authority and your kingship over all of creation and abroad. Lord, give us faith for things not seen, that we may trust you even when we can't see the end plan. Thank you for your body and blood that was broken and shed so that you could reclaim your creation, that you love us enough to restore us, that you... Love us enough to restore us as your sons and your daughters. Lord, we love you and we await the day you wipe every tear from our eye and you dwell with your people, Lord. We do all this for your glory and our neighbor's good. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. I'm going to close with this benediction.